Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 411 from 406. My name is Chewy, and I am joined once again by my brother from another mother, Mr. Pip. How are you, sir? <laughs> I'm doing great. <laughs> it's uh, it's Thursday night, also known as podcasting night, also known as the night before my favorite hangover. But hey, <laughs> enough, enough about my addictions. What's uh, what's <laughs> going on with you, my friend? Uh, not, you know what? Not much. It was, uh, it was pretty fucking cool. I got to see you last week. You were in town, which it was is amazing. amazing. Yeah. It was kind of like an, a, a fun little pop in. I had to come to Cleveland for work and I wanted to spend some time with my, my team that is out there, which I haven't done a good enough job of doing since I started working with them a couple of years back. The, the supervisor who works in Cleveland became my supervisor, uh, in February or excuse me, March of 2020. So for obvious reasons, uh, that got kind of put on pause and I just didn't have a chance to get there. And I finally made the trip and, you know, I, I had the dubious pleasure of spending not one, but two nights with you. I came over for Monday night football just to watch, uh, you know, Nick Chubb bend his leg 90 degrees in the wrong direction and was, got to see that your- was- bad oh yeah God, that was bad that yeah. was tough i mean it, it looked like a bad game from the very first play and it, it unfortunately didn't get any better for your brownies but uh yeah i got to see your family your your lovely wife and your children which was great and and then night number two was even better we got to hang out at an old stomping ground called the winking excuse me the winking lizard and we got to share some food and some drinks and some great stories and it, it was obviously the highlight of my trip. It was fantastic. And I, you know, I don't want that to take the place of us getting together and hanging out properly, but man, it does help to fill gaps. No, it was, it was cool. I was, uh, I was pumped. Uh, so yeah, Monday, Monday night, uh, we just kind of, we, we started a fire we sat outside and we watched the game. It was a nice night. And I remember I got, I got up and I missed like the, the literally I missed like the kickoff and the first two plays. I don't know if I was on the phone or in the bathroom and I come back and you're like, Oh yeah, it's seven, nothing. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. 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 I think it was the first play. Of the game was a, uh, was it a, a pick six, a pick six. Yeah. <laughs> or taint as we call it in some circles right. touchdown after interception um yeah it was it was not pretty for the browns unfortunately and uh it doesn't look like it's going to get prettier for the season but you know who knows i don't know maybe they can bounce back they beat up on they beat up on uh tennessee last weekend i mean tennessee is really bad i think they beat them 27 to 3 i mean there was a bunch of ass whoopings in the nfl last weekend i don't know if you caught many of those but like Miami put 70 on the Broncos yeah and I know you're a Broncos fan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm painfully aware of that one I didn't watch it but I saw the final score and and the millions of memes that followed and yeah it was ugly I've not seen a professional yeah. score like that in a long time and against my Broncos definitely was not thrilled about that now I I actually don't know. are the Broncos really bad this year or was that just a a, a an aberration of a football game or I, both I I mean I really honestly don't know yet but I yeah. I'm leaning towards really bad which is bizarre because I know Russell Wilson has had his struggles there but I don't think he's a bad quarterback and they 
they have Sean Payton now, who's a Super Bowl winning coach. Yeah. So I have no idea what's happening out there. If it's just being mismanaged or if it's a talent issue, I'll be honest. I don't follow the NFL quite as closely as I used to. I just kind of fair weather root for the teams that I like, which are Denver and Dallas and the Colts. And, you know, hopefully they win. But if they don't, I don't let it ruin my day. It's a fun thing to do on a Sunday when I don't want to do anything else. But I can't tell you the ins and outs of what's going on with that team, except they appear to be pretty terrible. Yeah. So, so you don't follow the NFL much. I know you follow college football. And... Oh, shit. Here we go. <laughs> and I was trading, and and I think luckily for you, you didn't watch the game, but I was trading texts with you about the Notre Dame Ohio State game, which was great yes. from a Notre Dame perspective until the last play of the game. The last fucking play of the game. I can't tell you how close I would have been to having a some kind of an embolism if I'd have been watching that game, because I've seen that play out many times yeah. before, whether it was USC uh, back with Reggie Bush and the whole Bush push thing, or, I mean, you name it, like I've seen them lose last second, a lot of times, and there's no team I hate losing to more than Ohio state. So that was rough. I, I traded some, some well-flavored text messages with your oldest son Um I know probably (laughs) probably taught him a few words that I wasn't very proud of, but you know, I, I, no, I actually, that's probably not true, but I, I just, I hate Ohio state. And I felt very confident going into that game that they would win. I thought if, if any chance, any time in South Bend is a tough place to win for sure. And I mean, credit to Ohio state. They were the better team that day, but I still hate them massively. Yeah. What, what do you, what, yeah. And, and even, even living in Ohio, um, I, I mean, I, I do not consider myself an Ohio state fan. So I, I was, I was just kind of watching that game as a, as an interested by, you know, as a, as a fan, right. I mean, it was, it's two very, very good football programs that I don't particularly have any sort of affinity to either of them. And so I was just, so I, I got to actually enjoy it just as a kind of a third party fan what do you make of the whole Ryan day versus Lou Holtz thing? Are you familiar (laughs) with this, this kind of back and forth? So I I didn't hear what was said. I only read what was said. So I heard the commentary and I don't know. I mean, as a Notre Dame fan, as someone who grew up a Notre Dame fan and watched the last time they won a national championship game coached by Lou Holtz back in 1988, I love Lou Holtz. I mean, I just think he's great. He's this kind of goofy old man now. And I, you know, I don't know the context of what he said, if you know, how critical he was being, but obviously, you know, the Ohio state coach took it personally. And, and I get that. I I understand both sides, I think in that respect, but I actually kind of liked Lou Holtz's response to, to is it Ryan Day? Is that his name? I, I don't know. Ryan Day. Yeah, he's the coach okay. of Ohio State. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I actually like Lou Holtz's. You know, he basically said, "No, this is how I feel." And if you know, if you're going to come after me, then come after me. But this is this is what I think. And and I, I thought that was at least on. He's like Ohio State's great football team. You're great, or he's you're a great coach. It was a great game. You had a great win. You know, I think you're a good football team, but I don't think you're great. And I think that that's yeah. something that a coach would say. I think that's a that's a very coach thing to say, right? Like it's almost like he's motivating them. I don't think that's that was his intention, but it doesn't surprise me that it came out that way. 
Well, it, and so here's so here's actually what he said. So I, I went back after the fact, and I and I was like, because again, I all I all I saw was Ryan Day respond to it, and he was clearly very fired up. And here's what he said, and he said it on the Pat McAfee show, which I love Pat McAfee for a variety of reasons. But he said, I think Notre Dame is a better football team than Ohio State. He said he has lost. Oh, he said uh, then Holtz called out Day for some of his shortcomings as the Ohio State's coach. He lost to Alabama, Georgia, Clemson, Michigan twice, and everybody that beats him does so because they're more physical than Ohio State. I think Notre Dame will take the same approach. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. No, like, I, I those I are all objective things that he said. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. It was he wasn't attacking him personally. He wasn't calling him a bad coach. He was just saying that you know he's had some bad losses, and it's because the other teams have been more physical. And I think in a in a very uh in, in a sporting world very dominated by men and and insecurities and things like that i'm sure ryan day took it personally and and decided to clap back when he when when he got a much deserved win in south bend and you know i i think that holtz's response after that that i referenced earlier i think was a good response to that i, I mean i think he said hey you know that's I said what I said, and that's what I meant. And I think it's much ado about nothing. Personally, I think yeah. it's a it's a clickbait headline just to fire things up and keep the keep the machine moving. But you know, I, I didn't think it was yeah. anything egregious on Lou Holtz's part. Uh, yeah, I agree. So, uh, so one more thing on this game, we're not here to talk about football. Um, Thank you. Did you see on that last on that last play? There was only ten guys on the field for Notre Dame. Which, I have not seen is, a, I have not seen a yeah. single highlight of the game. I refuse to watch yeah. it at this point. And I did hear that. And uh, that's disappointing because I really, truly think that Marcus Freeman is a fantastic coach. I think he's really I, I agree. good. Yeah. I don't know if that's his fault or his defensive coordinator's fault, or I don't, I don't know what happened. I'm not going to get into the minutia of it. Yeah. Just because it's not going to change anything, but it's it's unfortunate and very surprising that that happened. Yeah. So that same night, you were at what? You were at Farm Aid, right? Yes. That's how was that show? Oh my god, dude! It was incredible. It was it was not. I I had no idea that I was going to get what I got out of that show, and it was incredible. There were a ton of bands. So Farm Aid is this traveling show, for lack of a better term that they they have one show every year i guess it's kind of a festival if you could call it that because there are a lot of bands on it and there were quite a few bands that i was very interested in seeing it hasn't been in indianapolis in over 20 years which is kind of crazy because i feel like indianapolis is the midwest certainly known for farming one of the board members is john mellencamp so you'd think that they would have gotten back here but they've traveled all over the country over the last 20 years finally announced the show back here in Indiana, 10 minutes away from my house. And I tried to get tickets when they went on sale and I couldn't. And I was really pissed off about it so much so that I think I tweeted against Ticketmaster for the first tweet that I've made in like a year or something, just because I'm not, I'm not really active on Twitter or X or whatever the hell they're calling it these days. But I was very upset about that because the system failed me. I was in the line. I had my tickets in the cart and I went to click buy now. And it said, sorry, can't process your payment. Like, what the hell does that mean? And then I I lost and the ticket sold out in about an hour, less than an hour. I remember, I remember seeing that tweet. I did not realize until just now that that's what it would, that's what you were trying to purchase. I didn't realize that. Yeah, that's, that's the show. And I was 
so angry. So much. It, it, the, it flame, flames, flames on the side of my face, breathing, breath, heaving breath. And I was in text message conversations with multiple other people who had the exact same thing happen. So it was very frustrating. And I don't do one. Definitely one of my issues is I have a lot of FOMO when it comes to concerts. And especially because this venue that you and I have been to together before is no more than 10 minutes from my house. So the idea that all of these incredible acts would be 10 minutes from my house and I wouldn't be there. I just couldn't sit with it. So I finally said, to my wife, like, we got to go to the show. We got to scalp tickets. Well, I ended up getting tickets for, I don't know how close to face it was, but it ended up being very close to face. The The lawn seats were $75 each without the fees. If I would have got them through Ticketmaster, I got them off StubHub with the fees for about $110 each. Mm. So I Not mean, bad at all. with the yeah. fees, they, it would have been at least that much. So, so ended up kind of all even there. But on this card was a group called many, many bands. But, you know, the first one that we saw was Nathaniel Rateliff and the Night Sweats, Bobby Weir and the Wolf Brothers, Bob Weir from the Grateful Dead, Lucas Nelson and the Promise of the Real. Lucas Nelson is one of Willie Nelson's sons who was there. The Jim Ursay Band featuring Ann Wilson. So for those of you who may not know Jim Ursay, uh, which most of you should, he is the owner of the Indianapolis Colts. And he is very well known for having a very famous and valuable classic rock guitar collection. Like he collects guitars and he actually has his own little traveling show where people can pay and come in and see him. And and it's and I'll get to that in a second. Uh, Margot Price, who I'm not really familiar with, but she's on the board of Farm Aid, along with the four headliners, which are Dave Matthews and Tim Reynolds as one act. John Mellencamp, Neil Young, and Willie Nelson. And those four are always there. Dave, John, Neil, and Willie. And then Margot Price, I think. I don't know how long she's been on the board, but shes I think she's played one or two years. But so Nathaniel Rateliff was fantastic. It was a really great show. Bob Weir came out and played three songs and left, um, which is funny. And most of these bands only had 30 to 45 minutes because there were so many on the card that they couldn't, they couldn't play full sets and the show started at one and it ended at about midnight or actually maybe past midnight. Wow. So Lucas Nelson, the promise of the real, really great band, fantastic uh, guitar player. Lucas Nelson is, and and just, it's very country ish, but it's still good. The Jim Irsay band was the most bizarre experience I think I've ever had. It was so Jim Irsay comes on stage and I can't, I couldn't honestly see because I was at the very back of the the lawn, but he was either in a wheelchair or in a seat. And I think he he has been uh, in a wheelchair, you know, in recent days because of his health. But he comes out there and he's like, yep, this is, I'm Jim Irsay. This is my band and we're going to play some songs for it. And I thought, to be honest, the Jim Irsay band was just his collection of musicians that he sent out on stage. Jim Irsay sang two songs on stage. He oh, sang... Wow. He sang Lawyers, Guns, and Money, which is an old Warren Zevon song. And then he sang Comfortably Numb by Pink Floyd. Holy shit. Singing wow. the Roger. Alt- yeah, did, singing the, the Roger the, Water, you know, hello, is anybody? Okay. In? All so right. he did okay. the, the gravelly Roger Waters part. And then he had some uh, a, a couple of females that were on background vocals that did the, uh, the I, I assume that's David Gilmore who does the, the yeah. higher part. 
And then in his band was a guy named Kenny Aronoff. If you're not familiar with him, he went to IU. He was a, a former music professor at IU, but he's a he's a world-renowned session drummer. The guy has played with everybody from Elton John to Bon Jovi to Mellencamp to the Bodines. Like just like the list goes on and on and on. Uh, he was he played for Chicken Foot with Sammy for a while. I mean, it's just it's crazy. He's played with everybody. And Kenny Wayne Shepherd, if you remember that name. Oh, was, wow. Yeah. He came out around the time he was in like the while we were in college, like Johnny Lang was coming up and Kenny Wayne Shepherd has that song called Blue on Black. Kenny Wayne Shepherd comes on stage during this Pink Floyd cover of Comfortably Numb and he's playing David Gilmore's guitar like oh, his wow. guitar. So Jim Mersey, as I mentioned earlier, has this collection of really rare guitars. He probably paid a couple million dollars for this guitar and he gives it to Kenny Wayne Shepherd to play this song on stage. Wow. Which is part really, really cool and part really disgusting, in my opinion, because it just seems like he's he's just towing this stuff out to be like, look at all my toys. And I can't imagine David Gilmore loves that. But I mean, whatever. He probably loves he sold the it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then. Ann Wilson comes on stage. Ann Wilson is the lead singer from Heart. She's and she's crazy talented. So crazy, talented. amazing talented. She sang two songs. She sang a cover of The Who called Love Rain Over Me. And then she sang Barracuda. And then, of course, it hit me. Jim Irsay gave her as many songs as he gave himself, which was pretty bizarre. And then at the very end, he pulls out this big paper check and says, I'm donating a million dollars to Farm Aid you know, as, as part of the cause, right? Which is really great. And then it, of course, it dawns on the entire crowd. Oh, you basically paid a million dollars to get a 45 minute set at Farm Aid. They're like, sure, we'll, we'll let you join the, yeah. you know, the, the lineup if you do that. So I don't, it was just a really weird experience. Was, was he, um, I mean, obviously he's not Roger Waters, but, but was he like, was he, was he good? Was, or was it embarrassment? Like, was he, like was his, I mean, obviously his band, he's got all these great musicians as part of it, but like, was he, did he hold his own at least? Or was it just like a joke? I I don't think it was intended to be a joke, but it came off a little farcical if, if did it I'm really? being okay. honest. Like it, yeah. it didn't, It his band was amazing. Kenny Wade Shepard is an amazing blues guitar player. Kenny Arnoff is a great drummer. He had a lot of really talented musicians on stage, bought himself the best band. But I, I, maybe it was because I couldn't, separate Jim Irsay the the you know the celebrity football owner with the you know the yeah. scattered history and, and I just like I I couldn't displace that enough to really s- properly judge the performance but it kind of felt you, a little weird yeah do you know by chance have you looked when I, I'm assuming Farm Aid is not just in Indianapolis. Is that like a, a tour? Are they touring or is it literally once a year in Indianapolis? It is literally once a year, but it's, oh, it, okay. it, it changes venue to venue, city to city every year. So in about June, July timeframe every year, they announce where farm aid's going to okay. be. And it could be anywhere. And the, and the lineup constantly rotates with the exception of the, the four mainstays. Okay. Where I was going with that was, you know, the next night was Jim or say not around when like when they were in Cleveland, but it, it's, it's once a year. So that's, I mean, that's why Jim or was there this year. It was in Indianapolis. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah, gotcha. Exactly. Okay. Uh, Margo price was fine. She was okay. She did a Tom Petty cover. That was kind of fun. Dave Matthews and Tim Reynolds. This is the second time I've seen Dave in, in the, the same venue this year. So that was pretty cool. Dave is always a good show. I've, I've kind of rekindled a little bit of my love for Dave Matthews 
uh, now that sort of the uh, how do I how do I put this delicately? The, the the crowds at a Dave Matthews show back in college were a little bit obnoxious, and they have become a little bit more. Well, a lot of his fans back then are the same age as us, so people have gotten older. They've mellowed a little bit, so it's it's a better atmosphere. Uh, John Mellencamp was after that. He was pretty good. I would say that there were a lot of technical issues with his set. Dave Matthews and Tim Reynolds play played an acoustic set, so. I think that might have messed with the sound guy. The sound guy definitely struggled towards the end of the show because there were just uh, there there were so many bands and there were different uh, sound setups that I think it just became too difficult to get consistent. But now, when you, I, I don't know that I've ever gone to a festival show like that. When 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 you've got multiple bands like that on a card, are they like swapping out like? drum kits and obviously guitar like literally everything for each band or is this is every band like playing the same instruments no no normally they're not all playing the same instruments they okay. they may share some between some sets depends on who they are and and you know like the lucas nelson in the promise of the real being willie nelson's son came up to play with willie so like they like there was a little bit of sharing when it came to some of that stuff but for the most part those guys are all playing their own stuff and they all have so they're literally like yeah so they're swapping out everything in between each set well they're swapping out the instruments but they're not swapping out the sound system obviously the same speakers the same board uh probably different people running the sound system but they have about 20 maybe 25 minutes between acts for someone else to come in and figure out the sound and, you know, they sound check the drums and some of the other stuff in between the sets, but it's not a lot of time. So I could certainly understand why there would be technical difficulties. So Mellencamp was okay, but the sound didn't was, was not good. And then Neil Young comes on and he was really the guy that I was going to see. I, I have a lot of love and respect for Neil Young. I think he's one of the most amazing songwriters. It's very polarizing. A lot of people don't like his voice, and that's you know that's totally fine that's a that's a personal preference but i really like him but he got up there and he played three songs and he left and everybody was just like well what what was that about because he didn't play he wasn't like bob weir he didn't play like three 20 minute songs he played three short songs and left and everyone's just kind of scratching their head like well that's kind of silly i guess they're cutting the set to you know fit in the time window that they need to be in but of all people why cut neil young and so, you know, as at this point of the evening, it had gone dark and the lights were off and we're all sitting in the crowd. We're waiting for Willie Nelson to come on stage and somebody starts playing. So there's music playing and then somebody starts singing, but it's clearly not Willie Nelson. And we're all kind of looking around like, what's going on? And the lights come on and it's fucking Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan. Wow starts playing a song and we're all losing our minds. Like, this is crazy. Like farm aid is known for having special guests that are unannounced every year. And the lights come on and Bob Dylan's there. And we're like, Holy shit. Like Bob Dylan, a little piece of history for you. Bob Dylan actually kind of unintentionally was the, uh, the person who uh, conceived farm aid because when he was doing live aid back in the eighties, He's like, this is great, but why don't we do this for farmers? You know, like that would be that would be really helpful for, you know, all these people who are trying to make their living and and all this. And and they took it and ran with it. 
And the last time that Bob Dylan played Farm Aid was the very first one in 1985. And he hasn't oh, wow. been back since. So Bob Dylan's on stage and he's playing and we're all just losing our minds because what a what an incredible special guest. And then I start looking. I'm like, wait a minute. I recognize some of those other guys. And behind him playing as his band is Mike Campbell, Steve Ferroni and Ben Tench, who are three. Oh, the Wilburys. The Heartbreakers. It's Tom Petty's Heartbreakers. Heartbreakers. Yes. Wow. Okay. And so it's Bob Dylan and the Heartbreakers, basically. And like chills up and down my spine. I never thought I'd see any of those guys, you know, play their instruments again. I mean, they they play, but I never thought I would be at a show where I got to see Mike Campbell and and some of those guys. So it was just a it was a crazy, awesome experience. And I had never seen Bob Dylan before. And to be frank, you know, these days, I don't know if I would really enjoy sitting through an entire show, but now I can check him off my list uh, wow. without having to to go. If you put aside the the wow factor of holy shit, it's Bob Dylan, right? So put that aside objectively. Like how how is he now in 2023 as a musician? Is he still... Is he still Bob Dylan? Is he still holding his own or is he like, uh, I mean, like he, so many of our other legends that we love that have kind of lost 17 steps? Yeah, I, th- I think he's definitely lost some steps, but yeah. I would also argue that Bob Dylan's appeal was never his musicianship. It was his songwriting. He's never had a, a voice. <laughs> definitely that, wasn't his voice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. He's, he's never yeah. vocally been somebody who everybody loved to worship. I mean, he's another he's not unlike Neil Young. It's a very acquired mm-hmm. taste. But with both of those specific individuals, it's really more about the experience of listening to them and what they have to say than it is, you know, the actual performance aspect of it. So, you know, I'll, I'll be honest. Yeah, it wasn't vocally the most impressive thing I've ever heard, but I, you know, I didn't care that night. It didn't that matter. Moment, yeah. It didn't matter. It was just really cool. What what did Bob Dylan play? Do you remember his, the songs he played? He played three very obscure songs. So he didn't Did he? play All Along the Watchtower. He didn't play Dylan, to- Dylan tunes, though. Yes. Yeah. He Dylan played, okay. uh, I think he played a song called Ballad of a Thin Man. He played, what was it? Uh, simply something, something. I don't know. There were three songs that I didn't recognize that okay. are, are all decent songs, but, you know, nothing, no hits. He didn't say a word, didn't say anything to the crowd. He, you know, the really? lights came on halfway through one of his songs and then he played three songs and he walked off in true Bob Dylan fashion. Like that's him. He's not going to be like, Hey, Indianapolis, it's good to see you again. You know, like, he, right. That's yeah. not Bob Dylan. So that was great. And then the night ended with Willie Nelson, who is 90 years old and played 17 fucking songs in wow. insane. Good for him. So happy. I didn't stay for the whole thing. I honestly left early because I thought he'd play six songs and then drop dead. But, you know, he uh, turns out he played 17 songs and went home. But it was it was a fantastic show. And I knew for I I have it on pretty good authority. It's the last chance I would ever get to see Neil Young or Willie Nelson, probably John Mellencamp and and now Bob Dylan. You know, like those legitimately the last time I will ever see any of those artists live. So that was that was the really big selling factor for me. Well, I'm, I, I know what a music fan you are and an audiophile. And I'm glad you got to, I'm glad you got to have that, that experience. That's awesome. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah. It was great. It, it, it beat the hell out of uh, watching Notre Dame do good for, for three point, you know, nine zero quarters. Yeah. <laughs> well, good. I'm, I'm glad that that makes me happy. 
and it made me happy that you were here last week. And that was, yeah, because like the last time we saw each other before that was at my dad's funeral, which is kind of a bummer, obviously, <laughs> you know. Um, sure. So, yeah, like last week was fucking great, man. I'm glad. Uh, and then we get to podcast this week. Like, yes, this is amazing. This We're is a awesome. good run. This is a good great. run. I'm loving it. What? Uh, how's how's everything else? Things are good. Wife's good. Kids are good. Yeah, everybody's good. good. Yeah, things yeah. are good. Things are plowing through. Summer's over, and and Halloween is upon us. So, it, dude, it's it, fall. It's it, like it's officially fall. It is. It's officially fall, yeah. and it's it is that time of year where uh, you know one of my favorite times of year where we start. Uh, ramping up all the scary movies on the way to Halloween. So I'm I'm very excited about that. Have you do you have anything do you have anything on your wish list for the month that you want to see? Like I don't know about you, but like through the month of October, I try to cram in as many scary movies as possible. Whether I've seen them, whether I have not, anything and everything, I try to watch a couple of them a week if I can. And I'm curious to know I mean, I I know which ones you like. I know which ones you watch. But is there anything that's on your list? It's like I'm going to make the time to watch this one this season. Yeah. So so every single year, I I rewatch Halloween '78 every mm-hmm. single year without exception. I always yeah. watch it. This year, I'm making it a point to go back and rewatch the last three Halloween films. So Halloween. Halloween ends and Halloween kills um, or kills and ends, which kills the second, right? Kills and yes. then ends. Yes. Yes. I'm going to go back and I, I, I rewatched Halloween the other night. Still thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm going to watch those. The um, what else? You know what? Saw is in the theaters now, or if not, maybe tonight, I guess it's tonight officially. I'm not overly excited about that. I will probably go see it. But the Saw franchise for me has kind of lost some of its luster over the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if it's because I don't know if it was Spiral that did it to me, which I didn't really care for at all. Or the fact that I'm not really into kind of the torture porny type, you know, horror subgenre, which I think Saw has really kind of gotten towards. This one looks really, really good. Like, just trailer wise, this one looks really good. So I, I will probably go see this one. I have been, I did go back and I rewatched the original saw, which is one of my favorites. I love that film. Oh, fantastic. Um, I went back and I rewatched cabin in the woods the other night, which mm. I love, which I just absolutely love that film. Okay. Um, and I've, and I've watched a couple of, um, I've watched a couple of indie horror films uh, for scare tissue that I'm going to review on the site. Some, which are, a couple which are pretty good and a couple I've watched a couple stinkers too, but the exorcist trailer looks amazing. Like that, that new movie looks really, really good. And I don't remember exactly when it comes out, but I think it's pretty soon. It's next Friday. Oh, is it really? It looks really good. It looks really good. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. And I want to come back to the exorcist for sure, but there are definitely a handful of movies that I want to try to watch this time around. Um, I, I want to, you know, the Elm Street movies are all on uh, HBO right now, which is kind of cool. So you can stream oh, are they? those. Okay. And I believe all the Friday the 13th movies are on there as well. So that's that's pretty interesting. 
I the last time I looked, I don't think Freddy versus Jason is. I don't know that that one is because okay. actually I don't know why. I, I, I'm sure it's all the rights thing, but they were all yeah. New Line Cinema movies. I thought. I don't think that one is though. Is it? Well, no. It, let's see. Friday it, the Thirteenth was all Paramount. That was all Paramount. Was Friday the Thirteenth, and then New Line was Freddy. Well, Maybe that's what it is. I, I know Maybe for well, but so Jason Goes to Hell was a New Line movie. Because J- because they bought the rights to Friday the Thirteenth for that last Jason movie with the anticipation that they would unite those two characters, and so I don't know if it was exclusively New Line, but I I very specifically visually remember the New Line logo at the beginning of Freddy versus Jason because it's the it's the red backlit logo instead of the blue, mm-hmm. and and here you hear the. Uh, um, the Freddy Krueger piano theme with a ch- 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 in the yeah. background. So like they did a, a really cool mesh there. So I, I, yeah, I don't know. That one might be on there. It, it, they, they sort everything alphabetically. So like the nightmare on Elm street movies are kind of out of order. I think Freddy's revenge. I, I don't know. It's, it's weird. It's like one and then three and then four and then five and then two. And then Freddy's dead or yeah. Freddy's dead is what the sixth one is called. Right. Six or seven, yeah. Six, and then New Nightmare, which is, you know, that one's, I think they're all in there. They're just not all side by side. I want to try to catch up on some of the more modern horror movies. I know there's some other good ones on on HBO. They're uh, like The Barbarian, I think, is one of them. And that, the uh, trailer for that movie looked amazing when it, yeah. I mean, it and it seems like it's a year or maybe even two at this point ago. And I and for whatever reason, I never got to see it. But God damn, it looked really, really good. That's the one yeah. where like there's like a it's like a, um, a gal gets caught like in a basement. Right. She's like a I think so. I think that's the yeah. one I'm thinking of where she like she's she's like renting an Airbnb or whatever. And like shit goes really, really south. Really, yeah. really quickly yeah so we we talked about the exorcist a little bit and i kicked off my month of watching scary movies a little bit early and last night at about 8 30 i'm like ah, i got nothing to do my wife and kids are in bed let's put on the exorcist and watch it why not mostly because this new movie's coming out and i thought well i'm, I'm definitely going to go see the movie in the theaters because i haven't uh, been to the theaters in a little while I guess. And I certainly haven't seen a horror movie in the theaters in a very long time. I I guess maybe Halloween ends was probably the last scary movie I saw in the theater. If I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, which is about, about this time last. Well, did you see scream in the theaters? Oh, you know what? You're right. I did. That was, and that was like February. That's that's quite a while ago. Yeah. That's that was. Yeah. Yeah. Earlier this year. Yeah. So, so I rewatched The Exorcist last night and it was a really interesting experience because I just, uh, it, to be honest with you, I don't remember the last time I watched it all the way through. It was, it's, it has to be at least a decade probably since I've watched it and certainly not since I've had kids, which puts an interesting spin on watching that movie um, because you, you know, if you put yourself in the shoes of the mother and, and think about what something mm-hmm. like that. I mean, granted, this is all sort of fantastical, but, you know, just picturing what you would do in a situation like that, if that were your kid is, is pretty terrifying. But I mean, you know, I'm thinking a lot about this movie since I've watched it. And I mean, I, I think it's fair to say, and maybe not, was this like the first really, really big 
horror movie. I mean, Rosemary's Baby came out before that. So it's fair to say that maybe that one is. But I mean, before that, it was all sort of, you know, Christopher Lee's Dracula or The Wolfman or a lot of the old school black and white movies and things like that. But this is the first horror movie chronologically that I really remember being more of a cinematic experience as we know it. Is that fair? Without doing research and off the top of my head, yes, that's fair. You know, like you can throw Jaws in there, but Jaws was not really a horror movie. And that's after that. That's what, 75, 75. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's a couple years later. Yeah. Rosemary's Baby. Um, When when are things like um, I'm trying to think Um, the Omen that's in the early 80s. Um, I actually Polter- think The Omen came out in the 70s, if Did I'm not it? mistaken. Like Pol- Poltergeist is like 81, 82, something like that? I think that's 83, maybe 82. Okay, so I just looked. The Omen is 76. Right. So that's still three years after this. Yeah. Because Exorcist was 73, right? Yeah, we're celebrating the 50th year yeah. anniversary of this movie, which is yes. bananas. Yeah, I mean, it- yeah, there, there, there may be there may be some some films that that are that technically came before it, but yeah, I think it, it is absolutely like the the one that put horror on the map from a like quote unquote mainstream perspective, right? I mean, The Shining yeah. wasn't until eighty, you know, several years after seventy two for seventy three for sure. Um, and even that's not really known as a horror film. Well, I guess it is. It's more supernatural than anything, but yeah. it's but it's definitely old. You know, Halloween didn't come out till '78, so that's five years after. Yeah, for sure. I think the the short answer to your question is yes. I think it is. Yeah, and and it kind of shows a little bit being the first one. And you know, my my takeaway from this, you know, without trying to invite a whole lot of uh, <laughs> criticism or anything, is that. It, I don't really think it's as good of a movie as I remember it in terms of story. I think in terms of performance and in terms of like the shock value of what was happening, we have the benefit of hindsight living in 2023, having seen a lot of really good horror movies and, and sort of how they've the iterations of how they've improved over the years. I can't imagine what it was like to walk into a theater in 1973 and sit through this movie where a girl is stabbing herself in the vagina with a crucifix and yelling obscenities and turning her neck all the way around to her back. I mean, like that kind of stuff in 1973 was never seen before. So I imagine at the time it was absolutely shocking, but, and I don't want to, I'm not taking away from it because it's not shocking by today's standards. What I'm simply saying is that, There are a lot of story threads that I don't think tie together quite as well. So I I don't remember, I don't know how much you remember about this movie, but for example, the opening of this movie starts with... uh, Iraq, isn't it? Yeah, yes, it's in Iraq, which is so (laughs) weird because it's this archaeological dig and you just sort of assume it's like Egypt or somewhere in Africa, but it's in Iraq. And it's Max von Sydow's character. Who is who, by the way, in this movie looks old as shit. And to think that he was in he's the like, Force Awakens. <laughs> he's, I, I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure he was like 
he was 50. 45. I think, he was, okay, I, was, I think yeah. he was around 50 okay. when he filmed this movie or close to it because he was 90 when in his 90s when he died and he was in The Force Awakens in 2015, yeah. which is crazy. He looked as old in that movie as he did in this movie. Bonkers. But the movie starts with him and they're doing this archaeological dig and he uncovers this relic, right? This this thing that's clear and they have all this creepy music playing in the background. And it's, it's like, ooh, something's going to happen. And then they basically cut to, you know, Washington, D.C. or the, the Georgetown area. And this is where things kind of fall apart a little bit for me. I don't have a problem with the slow pacing because that's how movies were made back then. And I actually kind of like that because things marinated and you got to kind of think through them as they were happening. But the problem is, is that they never really connect the dots between that story and why does this character, Reagan, who is the, the the little girl, why does she get possessed? Like, it just sort of happens. It's not like she found this artifact stuck in her attic or anything like that. Like, she just sort of wakes up one day and has this, this demon inside of her. And that's not really great storytelling, in my opinion. Like, I, I think, I, I think they got away with the some some pretty glaring oversights because it was such a shocking movie and, and that was the appeal in 1973 yeah so so a couple things yes i i think you're right i think and if i remember correctly the name of the demon i think is is it pazuzu yes i don't even know okay they don't i don't think they ever even say that name they in may the movie. they may not yeah and not um, in that movie maybe in a future one but yeah. i don't know yeah, you're right. I think I think it does get away with a lot because of the shock factor. I think you're. Uh, I was while you were talking. I was I was looking. So, Rosemary's Baby and Night of the Living Dead both came out in '68. This was '73. That being said, this movie is a much scarier quote unquote movie than those. I would agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, but I would agree with you that The Exorcist is, and again, I'm not taking anything away from it. It's creepy. It's shot really, really well. It's actually a beautiful, like, if you can yeah. look at it objectively, it's a beautiful horror movie. Um, it's slow as fuck, though. It's really yeah. fucking boring. I and I and I know that you know this. I've I've for as long as I can remember, The Exorcist Part Three is by far a superior horror film than the OG in my opinion it like the exorcist part three is a great horror movie and like a lot of people overlook it because they're like oh it's the third film blah 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 blah. no it's a better horror film than the original in my opinion you know what call this a hot take but I I don't disagree with you I think it might be an overall better movie and it's yeah oh man it's really hard to admit that because yeah i mean there was a stigma around horror sequels in the 80s and you know i I don't remember how or why we ever watched this i know we watched it together multiple times when we were in college but i don't know how we ever had the bravery to sit through a a sequel especially after the second one because the second one's so terrible i didn't see the second one i watched the trailer for it last night and i didn't realize james earl jones is in that movie that's hilarious but yeah it, the trailer looks abysmal, but I'm wondering if I need to try to put myself through this. But, you know, that aside, I think that it's I did want to talk about The Exorcist 3 because I do think it's interesting that I think I would much rather we watch that movie than the original. 
the first one's slow. The first one has some editing problems, I think, in the beginning, because there's just a lot of shit that doesn't need to be there. And it's already a two plus hour movie. And, you know, one of the things that I really wanted to comment on that I thought was interesting, and, and maybe this is kind of stupidly obvious to everybody else, but watching this movie through last night, I realized this movie is not, it's not Reagan's movie. This is not a story about her. It has nothing to do with her. It is, no, really. it is, it is father Damien Karras's movie. It's, it's all about him. He's the central character. She's the one that gets possessed, but he is the one, I, I can't say that he has a character arc, but he is the one that has the most development out of all the characters in that movie. Because, you know, the movie starts with him and he's kind of losing his faith as a as a priest. He's not sure what he wants to do. He kind of wants to get out of the priesthood. And then, you know, this murder happens. Uh, and, you know, the possession piece of it happens and he comes in and he sees this and it's almost like his faith was restored by seeing what happened to this this poor little girl and then of course the climax at the end which ironically isn't him saving well it's kind of him saving the day but it's him doing that by being very selfless and 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 assuming the possession of this demon like he says come into me come into me take me leave her alone and and the demon does that and then he throws himself out the window to to kill himself which we will learn by the third movie didn't work but so good but i mean so good (laughs) but the movie is really about him which is funny because i feel like his character is very understated in that movie he's not like the star of the movie you kind of think it's the the mom and then you think maybe it's reagan but it's it's not it's really about him and i thought that was really cool and he and he's he's not even like the lead priest like there's a whole nother priest that like is the is the like the quote unquote like he he ultimately does the exorcism but like there's another priest that they kind of like call in from the bullpen. Right? Well, that's that's uh, Max von Sydow. Max von Sydow, right? Exactly. Yeah. And then and, and he so, dies while yeah. he's trying to perform this exorcism. Yeah. And then, you know, Father Karras, he he can't even finish it. He doesn't finish it. He goes in there. He sees his friend, who I, he's been friends with for like ten minutes. He sees him dead and he loses his shit and he starts physically assaulting this little Beating girl. Beating the shit out of Regan. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And he's like, you know, get out of her, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then, and then, you know, the finale of the movie, but it's not about Ellen Burstyn's character. It's not about Linda Blair's character. It's, it's about Jason Miller's character. It's about Damien Karras. And I just, I found that really interesting having rewatched this. I, I'm glad, I'm glad you came to that revelation because it, I value your opinion as a movie watcher. I value your opinion as a horror movie watcher. And it kind of validates my opinion again, that, that the, the again, not that the original one is not a good movie because it is, but it's, it, it I, the third one is a far superior film, in my opinion, and I, I know that we're not here to talk about three, but it, but again, it's it's just kind of a slow movie. The second one, is, or I'm sorry, the first one is a really slow movie. And there, don't get me wrong, there's some super iconic the 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 score. You know, there's a couple iconic shots. You know, to see Regan coming down backwards. You know, doing the spider crawl and the and the crucifix and the 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 pea soup vomit and all 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 sorts of stuff. I would imagine that that probably hits you very different as the as the father of girls than it does me as the father of boys. I'm used um, to it. I see Olive do that spider walk all the time. 
Right. But yeah, it, it, it's a it's a really, really slow movie. And and I'll tell you what it does. And I don't know if it does it on purpose, but it it makes the audience do a lot of work to to get through it. You know what I mean? Like it, it really makes them invest and really try to um, try to follow along. And maybe and maybe because it was so successful at grossing people out and being so, so spooky, maybe that's why it was so, so successful. I'm not sure. But like looking at it again, 50 years later, as with a objective eye, it does. It, it asks a lot of the audience. You know, and and I think you make a lot of good points there. And I I really don't have a problem with how slow it is. I have a problem with the fact that it feels slow because they just put a bunch of crap in it that didn't seem to matter. It didn't, didn't pay, pay off. And, it's and not, didn't pay off. Yeah. It's it's not, in my opinion, good storytelling because it didn't really serve the story ultimately. And you mentioned the score. I think that's funny because the one thing that I noticed that really stood out to me this time aside from some of the other things that I mentioned is that there is no score to this movie. There's there's most of this movie has no music playing in the background. The, the, the popular theme called tubular bells is only played maybe twice throughout the movie. Uh, once, you know, about 10 or 15 minutes in, and then I think another time, maybe two or three times, but it's not overdone. Like it's like Michael Myers, Halloween theme is done in some of the sequel movies, but I thought it was one of the things that I think actually really worked for it is there was no score throughout most of the movie because it, I think it felt more immersive. Like I felt like I was in that bedroom with Reagan and the priests when she was gyrating around and bouncing up and down on the bed. And it was really cold in the room. Like the music would have just sort of made it feel like more like a movie. Whereas that made it feel more like I was part of the experience. And I thought that was really interesting. I don't know that that was intentional, but it's, it's not, it's not like a consistent score like you would see like a John Williams movie or something where there's always right. a, a theme playing in the background. You know, it, it's funny. So I, so I mentioned the score. I think, I think you're right. I, I it, You're right. It's, it's, it's not there. It's just that super iconic one yeah. piece yeah, of yeah. music that is so iconic that when you think about that movie, you think about that, and it's really not even the For whole sure. piece, right? It's 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 only about six or seven bars worth of music, but it's so iconic yeah. that it's that it's difficult to kind of separate that music from that movie, at least in my mind. Yeah, absolutely. No, you said that you you saw the second movie. I have never I seen the second movie. Can you summarize what that movie is about? Like, and I'm not, I'm not. That's not a joke. Like, I don't know anything about that second movie. I remember seeing the VHS tape in the video store and thinking, oh, I should really rent that. And I never got around to it, but it's notoriously bad. But I don't know. What is the plot? What is that movie about? I've only seen it maybe one and a half times. Linda Blair returns. Yep. In fact, I'm pretty... I'm pretty sure it's the only two movies she's ever been in for the like I think. Oh, she's, she's been a... in other movies, but those were the biggest. Yeah. And there was another ah, I'm trying to remember who it was. There was another actor that I think returned for that movie, right? Was it wasn't her mm -hmm. mom? It was oh shit, who was it? Richard Burton, Linda Blair, 
Max Van Saito is back in it. It must yes. be in flashbacks. James Earl Jones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so here's here's what I can tell you without like going to Wikipedia and getting a um a plot summary. Regan is older now. She's like, I don't know, 17 or 18. So what? She's a couple years older than she was in what was she in the in the OG? 12, 13, mm. something like that. Ish. That. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's a lot of like like hospital doctor scenes where they're doing tests on her and like sleep studies and like that just boring boring shit like does she get possessed again is that why they're doing these tests i i don't even remember that's how bad it was now you're gonna make me watch this movie because you can't tell me what it's about no i i can't i no i can't but what i can tell you is it was so bad that i didn't get through it twice how about that? Like I yeah. watched it once and I was like, holy shit, that's terrible. I, I, I can't. And, and maybe I'm, I, who knows? You know what? And if I'm wrong, I will come on this podcast the next episode and eat crow and be like, holy shit. I'm, I was wrong, but I, it was I, so no. fucking bad, bad that I just, yeah. I, like I historically, you're not wrong. yeah. Yeah. Nobody has, <laughs> has said that that's a good movie. Nobody in the history yeah. of, of movie watching has ever had a good thing to say about that movie. Yeah. And so it was funny because I remember um, I remember very vividly walking through the video store aisles and looking and seeing Exorcist 3. And so Jason Miller, who was Damien Karras, went to college with my father at the University of Scranton. Which is crazy. So cool and crazy. Right. And and so and I don't I don't think they were the same age, but again, they they both went to the same college and and I I had seen Exorcist 2 and I was like, oh my god, like I can't fathom that this third one is any good. And I was blown away by that movie. So that one, Damien Karras returns, right? Or the character Jason Miller returns in that movie. Um, and who else is in that movie? Uh, George C. Scott is like the, so, the main, yeah. What's interesting that I didn't know until I started reading it last night is George C. Scott actually plays Detective Kinnaman, I think is his Kinnaman. name. He who's in was the first movie. In the first yeah. movie. Yeah. But he's a character from the first movie that I think has no purpose whatsoever. I, I don't feel like he serves anything to that movie other than if then in this awkward scene with Ellen Burstyn where he asks for her autograph but he's he's investigating a crime but he ultimately has nothing to do with where that movie goes he doesn't so he if i remember and again i haven't watched that movie beginning to end in a while but if i remember correctly isn't there a character in that movie that is like in the in the room with Regan and he gets thrown out of that same window that Damien Karras goes out of. And they like pin, they like pin the murder on Regan. Right. Or, or yes. And it isn't in Kinderman is the one that shows up to investigate that crime. Am I remembering that right? Yes, that is, that is exactly correct. So Ellen Burstyn's character, her name was Chris McNeil and Chris McNeil was a famous Hollywood actress. And I, yes. I got the impression that they were renting this house in this area while she was filming a, a movie. And she had some kind of Hollywood boyfriend who, um, you know, she was dating or she was seeing or whatever. And then that sort of iconic scene towards the beginning of the movie where Reagan comes downstairs in the piano party and says, 
she looks at this guy, this guy that's her boyfriend, and says, you're going to die tonight. And then she pees all over pees, the carpet. Yeah. And it turned out that would be true. Only I, I guess it wasn't that night. It was the next day or whenever it was. But anyways, it was that guy who was mostly not memorable to to the rest of the story he wasn't a famous actor or anything like that but he was watching over reagan while ellen burston was out filming uh, you know her her movie and the nanny or babysitter i don't remember what her name was but she had to go she had to leave she had to do something so she had this guy watch reagan and when she came back like the guy was dead but he had been thrown out the window had gone down the stairs, his head had been completely turned all the way around. So, um, yeah, so that was that was the impetus for this detective coming in the scene because he comes and investigates yeah. and he kind of looks up the stairway from where the guy died and sees Reagan's window and then walks up and starts talking to her and starts putting together the pieces. But I don't really think that that ever manifests into anything interesting. Like, he he doesn't outright accuse Reagan of doing anything. And then it just sort of goes nowhere. You know, he shows up at the very, very end after, you know, Damien Karras throws himself out the window and all that. But like, for what? Like, he just kind of walks in the room at the end. Like, it, it really serves no purpose. But they continue. There's this other character in the first movie. His name was Father Dyer. And he's this kind of good looking older guy who was a priest as well. He was a good friend of Damien Karras in that movie and father Dyer and Kinnaman become friends in that movie, especially at the very end, they kind of become a little close and father Dyer is in exorcist three as well. And Kinnaman is in exorcist three. The thing that is confusing to me as a movie watcher is neither of these actors have reprised their role for this. It's George C. Scott and it's somebody else. So I think it's because this Kinnaman character plays such a trivial part in this first movie that it was confusing to me to connect those dots. Like he might as well have been some rando cop that was investigating all this. Like the fact that he had a connection with Damien Karras and all this stuff, it, it didn't really resonate. Like it didn't, they didn't do a good enough job of connecting those dots from my memory. I don't know, but it doesn't make Exorcist 3 a worse movie, but it could have been a better movie if they would have done a better job of connecting the dots between George C. Scott's character who was in the first movie. Like I, for 20 years, didn't realize those were the same people. Yeah. And yeah. And, and father and father Dyer in the third movie is the priest that plays the, the, the Max von Sido character. Now, well, What's Max von Sydow's? What's his name in the in the OG uh, movie? The, it what's was his, the Father Marin. Okay, so like Father Marin dies in the in the original one, and then Karis like finishes right. Yeah, and Father Dyer dies in the in part three, right? And then there's a and then actually it's George C. Scott's character, which is Kinderman, that like finishes the exorcism in part three. Spoiler alert. It's like yeah. a fifty-year-old, forty-year-old movie, um, but you're but you're right. I don't know, and and maybe it's because George C. Scott is a much better actor than the guy that played Kinderman in the first one, and for sure, you know, and 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 vice versa. But but I would implore people if they have not seen Exorcist three, and you don't really even really need to know the Exorcist backstory, 
to enjoy that movie, in my opinion. It's just a great horror movie. Yeah, it's a different kind of horror movie in terms in comparison to the original. You can't really compare the two. The one thing, no, yeah. another thing that I would that I would comment on that I think was really interesting about the first Exorcist movie is that it had no jump scares. It wasn't a jump scare movie, in no. my opinion. It was, I mean, again, lack of score. The only time, I mean, things got scary when you go in the bedroom with Reagan and and this this scene happens and she's, you know, obviously um, possessed. And, but like, there's always sort of a precursor. Like there's a, you know, it'll show the mom in the hallway and she'll hear a scream for the room. So, you know, something's getting ready to happen. So you can sort of prepare yourself. There are no jump scares in this movie. That's not this kind of movie. Exorcist 3 definitely has some jump scares, but it also, oh, it has, it, yeah. it, it doesn't rely solely on those though. There are some no. really good creepy scenes like that confessional scene. Oh, uh, it's so good. Oh yeah. my God. That is so disturbing. I saw that again last night as just a, a quick clip and holy crap. Was that, ugh. <laughs> Let me give me the so, chills. So, yeah, uh, you're right. Um, th- there, there's a couple. There's a couple. If I remember correctly, there's like especially sp- specifically scenes around like Pazuzu, right? Like there's a couple times when you can actually they'll flash and you can actually see the demon, and it's yeah. and it's done very. Um, it's discreet, it, it, I think. It, it's discreet. Yeah, it's like a, it's just a couple like a couple frames here and a couple frames there it's done really, really well. Whereas in the third movie, and I can't even really talk to the second movie because I don't remember it all that well, other than to say it fucking sucked. It was boring, but the third one, it, it has, in my opinion, possibly the greatest jump scare in the history of horror, which is the one where with the, in the hospital mm-hmm. with the, the hedge clippers. Right. But there's at least one more in there that is a jump scare in in audio only, right? Where like they they cut to something and they get the big, ah, you know, like the big, yeah. you know, the big, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but there's at least a couple in there. Yeah. I, but again, because of all of these reasons, that's why I'm really pumped to see this next one. Yeah. Because the trailer looks awesome. And who did they bring back from the OG? It was um, Ellen Burstyn is back. Ellen Burstyn. Yeah. Yeah, which is crazy. She she's done like shit in like 50 years, right? Yeah, she's like 90 years old. I don't know. What, well, no, I think she's done a lot of stuff, but I don't think it's been like, you know, A-list kind yeah. of movies. But like she, yeah, she's like 90 years old and she comes back to this movie. I, I don't really know to do what specifically. Maybe is she just, playing the same character? Yes, yes. She is. She is playing Reagan's mom. You know, which I, I can only imagine. I, I don't know what kind of story they're going to build around this, but I think it's really interesting that they're bringing her back. And, you know, the interest, the other interesting thing is that Linda Blair was on set to do some sort of, um, I don't know what you call it, mentoring or consultation to these to these children, because there's two kids in this movie versus one who are going to end up, you know, battling this whole possession angle. And Linda Blair was on set to you know, kind of walk them through that and teach them how to do it and, you know, give them some advice and be a mentor again. But, you know, this is planned to be a trilogy. This is, you know, David Gordon. Oh, Green, is it? I didn't know that. I yeah, had no idea. David oh, Gordon wow. Green wants to do three movies. And if they don't get Linda Blair back, I feel like it would be the biggest oh, of course mistake they are. Yeah. 
Okay. But but here's the thing though, in the second trailer that they released for this movie, they're implying that Linda Blair's character is dead because if you if you watch it really closely, there's the scene where Ellen Burstyn walks in the room with one of, you know, one of the kids who's been possessed and she's like, "Are you looking for Reagan? She's in here with us." You know, and, and it's like what does that mean? Like does that mean she disappeared or does that mean she's dead or who knows what it means, but I mean, we, we've been, you know, swerved in trailers before, so it wouldn't be the first time, you know, the Avengers would, would, would artificially put characters in scenes that didn't belong there. So yeah, granted, this is an Avengers, but I, I don't know, like, I can't imagine them making three movies without having Linda Blair in this somehow. You kind of, you kind of have to, right? I mean, you, you, like you kind of have to. And here's the thing, whether you love Blumhouse or not, I'm a huge fan of Jason Blum because that dude goes hard into the horror genre. I don't always love everything that he's, he's trying. Done. He's trying to keep he's the shit alive. He's trying really, really hard. Yeah. And he's got a vision and he's willing to spend money and he's willing to go after it and he's willing to take chances. And that means that sometimes we're going to love it and sometimes we may not, but like, I'm a huge fan of what Jason yeah. Blum and Blumhouse are doing. I mean, that's where it's at from a horror perspective right now, right? I mean, there's nothing else out there. No, that's, I mean, yeah, I would agree. That is that is sort of where you go to to breathe new air into a franchise. And I'm really hopeful that Nightmare on Elm Street makes its way there at some point, someday. I don't know. The Halloween did. Maybe, maybe they'll get the rights to make an Elm Street movie. We can talk about that, but... There's one other thing I wanted to touch on is that, and this is, I just came up with this today and I doubt it's true, but you know, this movie hovers around two girls, you know, being possessed. What if this Pazuzu, cause she, you know, the, the trailer's like Ellen Burson's like, I know you, or I, you know, I've seen you before or whatever. What, what if one girl's being possessed by this Pazuzu character and the other one's being possessed by Reagan? How cool would that be? Uh, that'd be great. Like, what if somehow she died and, and that, that did happen? Like, she is the one that's doing it. Yeah, I, I don't know. They could go a lot of different ways with this, but I um, I definitely think that uh, it's going to be good and I'm excited. And that comes out, yeah, next week, next Friday. What were you going to say about Elm Street? I feel like I, uh, I, I, no, no, I, uh, I no, diverted I, you. No, you didn't, other than I, I would love to see Blum, Blumhouse get their hands on elm street i was so let down like i think most people were with the last version of freddy the you know the 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 jackie hurl hurl jackie earl haley jackie earl uh, haley yeah um i i was just really let down by that version of freddy you know when, when you're talking about and i think we've done this even on the podcast right when you're talking about kind of the the mount rushmore of horror right like you got you got freddie jason and and michael and, and then that that kind of fourth spot is yeah it's up for consideration but but that's the big 3 right and we yeah. haven't had a we haven't had big 3 i mean other than we've had michael in relatively recent times even had Freddie or Jason in a long, a long time. Like yeah. the last time we got Jason was Michael Bay, and that was what? It was in the nineties, wasn't it? Yeah, early two mm, thousands. Yeah, I, I think the problem with Jason is that he's uh, he he's a tough one to write a movie around because as a character, 
He's not really he's that interesting. Yeah, he's terrible. Yeah. I mean, he's he's good, but he's just not that interesting. There's nothing intriguing about the character. Although I I guess you could say the same about Michael Myers, but they have written a better universe around him. Like he's got a Well, that's the Jamie Lee Curtis. Sure. Universe. It's not really the Michael universe. I, yeah, right? okay. I guess that's fair. There, at least there's... well, at least at least the last 3 films. Yeah, there's a Superman to the Lex Luthor. There's right. some balance there, right? There's there's not a there's not a Jason, primary character for Jason that I feel Jason like Jason doesn't have an antagonist, does he? No, he really doesn't. Not a consistent one, no. And but, even Freddy, Freddy doesn't either, but Freddy has his own personality. Yeah, true. Freddy is is uh, it's a much more compelling story. You know, somebody who kills you in your dreams, which is something you can't get away from, is is still to this day, I think, one of the most fascinating things you could do. And with today's technology and movie making, I can only imagine that the dream sequences would be amazing if they could finally do that. Uh, I don't know who you'd fan cast for that role. You know, who would be Freddy Krueger these days? That would be, uh, I don't I don't know. I would want it to be a younger actor. I know Kevin Bacon actually kind of put his hat out there, no pun intended, to get selected for that. But he's way too old for this part at this point, I think. I mean, he's got to be close to Robert England's age, but I I don't know. I think if they could find somebody younger and maybe try to develop a whole new story around it, it would be fascinating. It would it could be really good. Yeah. Uh yeah, I think I, I just looked. Um let's see, Robert Anglin was born in 47. I think Kevin Bacon was born in like 58. So they're Okay. He's 10 or 11 years old but but even still still i don't want to start uh, yeah a, a potential franchise with you know somebody that old i, I don't think it would last yeah back back to exorcist i would i would love to see regan be the be the demon that'd be amazing it'd be amazing i just hope she shows up i think it would be good fan service for her to be a part of it even if she gets killed i don't know it, it even if it's a cameo i don't really care like she was not the most important character from the first movie, but I think she's one of the biggest stars. I, I definitely think she's one of the people that have come out of this. Like everybody knows who Linda Blair is. Ellen Burstyn, I think a lot of people know her as well. I don't think anybody knows Jason Miller. Of course, Jason Miller passed away many years ago, unfortunately. Jason Miller is the uh, father of Jason Patrick, the actor from The Lost Boys and Sleepers and... His his mom, Jason Patrick's mom that Jason Miller married was Jackie Gleason's daughter, which is just crazy. It's uh, crazy. Yeah, it's it's a neat sort of uh, six degrees kind of situation. But I don't think I ever saw Jason Miller in anything else. But man, I think he did such a good job of encapsulating this character in the two movies that he played him. He did for sure. Um, all right. Hey, we we've rambled long enough about the Exorcist, Exorcist Part Three, Exorcist Part Two. Don't don't see Part Two. It's terrible. It don't died. see Part like, Two, but go see the yeah. new one. And go please, see, yeah, go to the theater, buy popcorn, yes. live the experience. Movie theaters are <laughs> not doing too well right now. Uh, the writer strike looks like it's on its way. To, I think it's over. Right? I, I thought I it was it, over. I think we're getting there. I think it's going to be there pretty soon. But hey, man, we can't. We can't live in a world without movie theaters. So please go support your movie theaters, buy tickets, buy popcorn, buy overpriced drinks, slushies, whatever it takes. Just do it. Yeah. Enjoy the experience because once it goes away, we can never get that back. 
So, so real quick, and then we'll wrap up and we'll get out of here. Have you thought at all? So we're, we're recording on September 28th right now. Have you thought at all about where we're going podcast wise in the le- next couple episodes? Have you, do we have any topics? Do we have any, like, do you have any ideas of where we're going? I mean, it would be a shame for us not to cover something Halloween themed, right? Like maybe not necessarily the Halloween movies, but some scary movies, maybe a deep dive. We haven't done one of those in like a year we at haven't. this point. It's been a long time. It's kind of a, in fact, the last one we might've done might've been Halloween ends. I don't, I'm not sure I remember, but it's definitely time. Oh, you know what? We really need to do a deep dive on an Elm Street movie. I think we're, we're long overdue for that. Clearly we can't knock them all out because there are seven of them and then a Jason versus Freddy, or maybe we could even do a deep dive on that. I don't know. But Elm Street is okay. my favorite. And I think it's if it's not your favorite, it's a very close second. So it's I, right up there. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we maybe we pick our favorite one and just do that one and talk about that. I think that would be fun. Okay. I'm I'm totally open for that. All right. Well, let's see. So let's see. That we're we're in September right now. Maybe we're gonna one or two episodes in October. Let's try for two. Halloween. Yeah, I think that's that. I think that's good. Uh, that's a good bogey to shoot for for sure. So, yeah. all right. That being said, that's Mr. Pip. I'm Chewy. This has been the four one one for four six. We'll talk to you soon. Have a good one, folks. Late. Adios.